Welcome to today's American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Susan Hauser, the ABI's resident scholar for the fall of 2012. Bankruptcy professionals are well aware that student loan debt has reached a level approaching crisis in the United States. In the year 2010, the amount of outstanding student loan debt began to exceed credit card debt. In 2011, student loan debt began to exceed auto loan debt. In March of 2012, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau reported that the total amount of student loan debt was more than $1 trillion in the United States. Bankruptcy professionals also know that student loans are generally not discharged in bankruptcy, but may be discharged if the debtor files an adversary proceeding and satisfies the undue hardship standard of Section 523A8. Today, it's my pleasure to talk with Jason Giuliano. Jason is a graduate of Harvard Law School and is obtaining a PhD in politics from Princeton University. He's conducted an empirical study of student loan discharge cases, uh, the largest and most comprehensive study of these cases that's been conducted to date. And he recently published the results of his study in the American Bankruptcy Law Journal in the summer 2012 edition. Jason, welcome, and thank you for joining me on this podcast to talk about your findings and the article that you've written about them. Thank you for having me, Susan. Yeah. Your article reports empirical findings on student loan discharges. What conclusions did your study find? Well, I think there's four main takeaways um, from my paper that I hope to emphasize. But let me quickly just preface that by talking about the the adversary um, proceeding process and basically the student loan discharge process in general to set up the conclusion. Um, as you mentioned, there's student loan discharges aren't dischargeable through the normal bankruptcy process. Someone can't just file a Chapter 7 or Chapter 13 and complete a plan and have the, the student loans wiped out. They have to take the additional step of filing an adversary proceeding. And there's Congress never specifically stated what needs to be done through that adversary proceeding. They just used big language and said that uh, student loan debtors have to prove that they have an undue hardship. And courts have interpreted that in, um, in several different ways, but the seminal case on that is the Bruner Standard, and that's a 1987 case in New York. And it's been adopted since by most of the circuits, and basically that sets out three prongs that debtors must show to, that meet in order to show that they have an undue hardship. Um, basically, the first prong is that they have a current inability to repay the loans. The second prong is that they have a future inability to repay the loans. And the third prong is that they have made a good faith effort to repay the loans. Um, so basically, investigating this standard sort of motivated my research. And going through, um, building off of that, I, I basically found four, four main, I drew four main findings. Um, first, the, ju- the judges are largely consistent in granting student loan discharges. My second finding is that nearly 40% of debtors who seek a discharge obtain one. And this is contrary to the accepted wisdom that you see in the media reports, how people very rarely obtain discharges and how it's nearly impossible to obtain one and you have to have extreme hardship and just all the media reports that are out there that, that make it seem like it's a very low percentage of people who actually seek one actually obtain one. And that just is not the case. And my next two findings actually were more surprising to me. The, um, I found that only one-tenth of one percent of student loan debtors who file for bankruptcy even attempt to discharge their student loans. So that's such a small percentage of the people that are actually filing for bankruptcy each year even take the step of filing an adversary proceeding to discharge their student loans. So they simply don't request that the court even examine whether they have an undue hardship or not. And, and many more people could benefit if they take that additional step. Before the final uh, finding was 
that attorneys are not necessary for successful receipt of a discharge. In fact, debtors without an attorney performed slightly better than debtors who had an attorney. They were slightly more successful in, in receiving discharges, which is just, again, contrary to accepted wisdom about how attorneys add value and are necessary to navigate these more complex steps. So people who are hesitant, hesitant to file for fear that they won't be able to do this themselves or that they need an attorney who's going to charge them an exorbitant fee, they could simply file themselves and have basically about as good of a shot as if they had an attorney there to represent them. Jason, it's a really interesting study, and I'd like to go in and break into three of the conclusions uh, that you reached and talk about them a little bit more. So the, the first of those conclusions is the really surprising conclusion that you found that 40% of the people who filed 523A8 adversary proceedings obtained some form of discharge relief. Uh, about 25% of those received complete discharges and the remainder partial discharges. And then the second conclusion, which is equally as surprising, is that that discharge rate reflects a very low filing rate. So you studied the year 2007 and found that for that entire year, there were only 217 adversary proceedings filed under Section 523A8. Can you tell us your methodology? How did you come up with that number of 217 adversary proceedings? Sure. So, so I chose year 2007 because at the time I was collecting data, it was late 2010. 2007 was the latest year that nearly all the adversary proceedings had been disposed of. But in, in order to find the adversary proceedings, I used PACER, which is the Public Access to Court Electronic Record. And I used that to find debtors who filed adversary proceedings in 2007 to discharge their student loans. Now, on PACER, it's not possible to search specifically for adversary proceedings involving student loans. So instead, I had to search for cases involving student loan creditors. Now, I picked the top 10 student loan creditors, and these included companies like Sally May, City Student Loans, Wells Fargo, Education Financial Services, and others like them. And together, these top 10 lenders hold over 70% of all outstanding student loans. So when I ran the searches for these 10 creditors, I was able to pull up approximately 70% of all the student loan adversary proceedings that had been filed that year. And had these things in hand. I pulled the bankruptcy schedules on the docket, and I coded demographic and financial variables by examining primarily schedules A through J on the bankruptcy docket. And I also examined settlement agreements and judicial opinions where they were available. So that let you obtain the universe of cases uh, that were filed under 523A8 in that year. And then to obtain the really shockingly low number of those cases that were filed out of the total universe of debtors, you used the 2007 Consumer Bankruptcy Project to come up with some numbers about the entire universe of bankruptcy cases that were filed in that year. Can you tell us how you did that? What was your methodology there? Sure. So the 2007 Consumer Bankruptcy Project contains a representative sample of bankruptcy filers for that year. And in their sample, 29% of people had student loans at the time they filed for bankruptcy. The total number of bankruptcy filers in 2007, and this was just slightly over 800,000. So I multiplied that by 29%, which was the figure, the number of bankruptcy student loan debtors in the sample. And I got about 230,000 people. So that means that in 2000, 230,000 people that filed bankruptcy and had student loans. So of that number of people with student loan debt who filed bankruptcy in that year, 
which approximated 240,000 people, only 217 cases were filed, a really astonishingly low number. What's your hypothesis for why the total number of adversary proceedings filed out of this large number of debtors is so low? Well, I think there's three main reasons for why so few people in bankruptcy pursue the adversary proceeding to discharge their loans. First, I think many people simply do not know that you have to file an adversary proceeding to obtain a discharge. They assume that it will simply be discharged during the normal bankruptcy process, and they're quite surprised when student loan creditors come demanding repayment after they've gone through bankruptcy. And since I published my study, I've actually gotten a few letters and emails from people that have expressed this sentiment, and they just weren't aware of the adversary proceeding process in itself. So the second reason, I think, is that media reports claim that it's nearly impossible to discharge student loans. So if you read the papers, you'll frequently see newspaper anecdotes of people who have extreme hardship who fail to obtain a discharge. And debtors reading these stories will think to themselves, my my case isn't as bad as this. I'm, I'm unlikely to receive a discharge if I pursue the process. So why should I hire an attorney and pay that fee, or why should I undertake this extra time when I'm just going to lose anyway? It's so impossible to obtain a discharge. It's hopeless for me to try. And a third reason that I think is that many bankruptcy attorneys are under the impression, either from the newspaper anecdotes or or just their own experience through the process, that the undue hardship standard is nearly impossible to meet. And they advise their clients not to pursue discharges. Either they think that it's not worth the client's money to to pay them to to pursue the discharge, or they they think the clients just have such, such a small chance of success that there's no reason to, to pursue it at all. So I think those are the three main reasons for why there's so few student loan debtors actually request a student loan discharge through an adversary proceeding. One of the other conclusions that you find that I think is fascinating is that debtors who do not have attorneys actually fare slightly better than debtors who do in your sample. Why do you think that is? Why would a pro se debtor be able to succeed in a case like this as well as a debtor who has an attorney? Well, I think this might have actually been my most surprising finding, that having an attorney really isn't necessary to the process. And there's a couple reasons that come to mind. I think that hiring an attorney might signal to the judge that the debtor has disposable income that could otherwise be used to pay off student loans. So there may be a feeling that if you truly have this undue hardship and, and have met that standard, that you shouldn't be able to afford to pay an attorney to, to take on this extra adversary proceeding on your behalf. And another reason might also be that I've spoken with several bankruptcy attorneys, and their, their, their view is that judges will, will often be, or certain judges will be more helpful to pro se debtors. So there, there may be judges in the sample that are more willing to guide along pro se debtors through the process and help them out so that it, it on average, it balances out that the judges are, are more empathetic to, towards these pro se debtors and willing to guide them through the process slightly more than they would if the debtor had an attorney. So, so the, the debtor then ends up being able to navigate the process themselves anyway. It's a really interesting point. I've, I've seen several cases that involved pro se debtors uh, where the, the debtors were successful. And, and I think your points about that are very well taken, actually. One other set of findings that you have in the article that I think could be very useful to debtors' attorneys and to judges who have these cases and are considering what to do with them is the set of conclusions that you reach about characteristics of 
debtors who succeed in these cases. Can you tell us something about what you found about debtors who successfully do meet the undue hardship standard? Yeah, so I found three main points that, that correlate with successful receipt of a discharge. And those are debtors that are unemployed are more likely to receive discharges. Debtors with lower annual incomes are more likely to receive discharges. And debtors who have medical hardships are more likely to receive discharges. And so, so to give you a, an example of how extreme having a medical hardship and, and being unemployed, of how much that can affect the outcome, I, I created a predicted probabilities table that I constructed based on the data in my sample. And so, so a debtor with a medical hardship and no job will receive a discharge 66% of the time. Now, if we turn that on its head and, and posit a debtor who is employed and has no medical hardship, he'll receive a discharge just 29% of the time. So you can see that having a medical hardship and being unemployed more than doubles your, your success rate. A really interesting set of conclusions and something that seems actually to fit fairly well with what judges would look for under the Brunner standard. Uh, is is that something you would agree with? Yes. So, so I think going back to the Brunner standard, it definitely fits the first two prongs. So again, having a current inability to repay the loans would definitely be associated with being unemployed at the present time or having a low annual income. And having a future inability to repay the loans would likely be associated with having a medical hardship, either from preventing you from getting a job in the future or having medical bills that would pile up and divert income that could otherwise be used to repay the loan. And I found less clear evidence that there was any concerted attempt to, to ensure that debtors had made a good faith effort to repay the loans. Some judges, in their opinions, cited that having attempted to repay your loans by seeking an administrative remedy um, fulfilled this prong. So th there was some indication that judges looked for this, but there was not enough data to code this definitively simply because it was not included in every student loan filing, whether the debtor had filed, had sought an administrative remedy or had not. One recent court case in Kansas, Henry Kegel, held that debtors do not need to seek administrative remedies to meet this prong. So it's, it's unclear whether judges are explicitly looking for this or how they qualify having made a good faith effort to repay the loan. But I, I do believe that the first two prongs are clearly come into play when judges make this decision. So Jason, you, you also studied student loan debtors who did not file an adversary proceeding and looked at some of the demographic characteristics of that group. And I believe that one of the things that you found was that there is a strong subset of student loan debtors who didn't file adversary proceedings who you felt could have successfully done so. Is that fair to say? So, yes, I definitely think that there are a large number of non-discharge seekers who could benefit by filing an adversary proceeding. So, for example, if you take the three factors that I found to be correlated with successful receipt of a discharge, namely medical hardship, unemployment, and low annual incomes, you see that many non-discharge seekers are actually worse off than the median discharge seeker in my sample along these dimensions. Okay, so to be more precise, 22% of non-discharge seekers are worse off along two of the three dimensions that I mentioned, and an additional 7% of non-discharge seekers are worse off along all three of the dimensions than the median discharge seeker in my sample. So now for 130,000 people with student loans file for these here. So 22% of that number is about 17,000. So that means each year, nearly 70,000 people who would have had a very good shot at discharging their student loans via an adversary proceeding go through the bankruptcy process without ever requesting a discharge. 
So there was a significant number of people who could benefit, who could potentially benefit if they had just taken the step of filing an adversary proceeding. And we compare it to the slightly more than 200 people that actually filed adversary proceedings, you can see how big of a jump it is and how more people could benefit if they were either aware of the process or taking the additional step of filing for an adversary proceeding. So, so one of your conclusions is that the number of successful 523A8 adversary proceedings could be much larger. And that leads to a couple of additional questions that, that I would have. If bankruptcy judges saw more of these cases, do you think that the rate of discharges would decrease? In other words, are, are judges more likely to rule for debtors in these cases because they see these cases so infrequently? You know, that's a possibility, but I, I don't think it would be the case, and I don't think it would be the, the most salient concern. I, I think the more pressing concern, if that were to happen, would be that Congress would act to further restrict student loan discharges. So if there is a sudden surge in student loan discharges, creditors are likely to push for harsher, harsher restrictions, and Congress may turn around then and clearly define the undue hardship standard, which they have uh, so far failed to do, or they may put further, further burdens on that are just very clear, um, that, ju- that give judges substantially less discretion. So I, I think that would be the more pressing concern if, if suddenly 70,000 people were receiving discharges each year rather than a couple hundred. I don't think bankruptcy judges would step back themselves, but I, I think Congress may be pressured to intervene. Yeah, that was my second second question or follow-up question would be if more debtors began to receive discharges of student loan debt, would that impact the availability of student loans in some way? And those two ways would be through Congress tightening the standard or through student lenders becoming more critical, I guess, when, when they make the decision to make these student loans. Do you think student lenders might actually react as well? Student lenders, I think, not necessarily be a bad thing. Right now, there are a lot of fly-by-night institutions set up to take advantage of the federal government's loan guarantee program. Professor Marcus Cole was on your program in the summer a few months ago discussing student loans, and I tend to agree with his view that something should be done to discourage people from taking on loans to pay for degrees that will not enable them to pay off their loans. And Many times when student takes student takes on these loans, it's not actually the fault of the student. Rather, these institutions advocate employment numbers or shade statistics very positive view of post-graduation job prospects and salary information. And this, this encourages students to take on loans that simply that they will not be able to pay off in the future. And I think if student loan creditors had to be more discerning as to who they give the student loans to, they would discourage many of these, these fly-by-night institutions from opening up and operating. And to just give one example of this, there was a, a helicopter company, Silver State Helicopters, that fabricated numbers and things and, and I'm talking about. And a class action suit was filed against them. And eventually, a student loan express, a loan creditor, was forced to forgive over $100 million in loans simply because they were loaning money to students who who would clearly not be able to repay the money simply because Silver State Helicopters was not providing the employment advantage that it, it told its students it was. So these institutions are, are a problem, and I, I think ha- having slightly more discerning student loan creditors w- would cause them to stop taking advantage of, of the federal government loan guarantee program and exploiting them to the detriment of the students who, who faint or are putting their employment futures into the hands of these educational institutions. Jason, we're, we're almost out of time, but in line with your last set of comments, what I'd like to conclude with would be your thoughts on any kind of policy changes that you might recommend based on the results of your study. In particular, 
What would you recommend uh, in terms of steps to encourage more student loan debtors to file adversary proceedings, or do you think that's a good idea? No, I think it's definitely a good idea to encourage the people who are in need and who do meet this undue hardship standard to take advantage of it. Uh, I think one of the main things that needs to change is that the media needs to change its tone and how it handles uh, undue hardship in student loan cases. They need to stop printing tales of well and start showing more examples of successful good debtors because these types of people are out there. Um, as I've shown, over 40% of people who file for an adversary proceeding discharge obtain it. So I think it changes its tone and, and plays up how it is possible to obtain a discharge. The solutions to other problems will follow. For instance, bankruptcy attorneys will likely become more willing to recommend that their clients pursue discharges because there'll be these media reports out there that that explain how it is possible and it's not it's not this overwhelming standard that simply almost no one can meet. And additionally, if the media changes its tone, people will realize that there are people like them who are obtaining discharges and it's worth the effort on adversary proceedings to, to see if they meet the undue hardship standard. So I, I think it's it's mainly an issue of tone that, that needs to be changed by the media, and I think the other solutions will follow from that. Jason, thank you again for joining me. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Jason Giuliano's article is titled An Empirical Assessment of Student Loan Discharges and the Undue Hardship Standard was published in the summer 2012 issue of the American Bankruptcy Law Journal, and the citation to it is 86 American Bankruptcy Law Journal 495. Thanks also to our audience for joining us for this podcast. For the American Bankruptcy Institute, this is Susan Hauser. Thank you for listening.